We are in Amos. Amos is the second of the pre-Assyrian prophets, and, but he is the first of the what's called preaching prophets, like the one who actually preached. I mean, Jonah kind of preached, but it was a one sentence. But he's the one where we're going to officially get like message after message after message after message. Amos is interesting because he is the first prophet that's going to step into Israel and give a full-blown, typical, prophetic message of what we're used to. Elijah and Elisha were prophets that were prominent in the book of Kings, but they mostly did miracles. They mostly warned people, but they didn't have a message that was recorded of what God thought about Israel and what he was going to do with them. Amos is the first. Now, there might be other prophets that we know there were hundreds upon hundreds of prophets that were coming to Israel and going out of Israel over this time period of the kings, especially towards the end. And these major minor prophets that we have in the Bible are definitely not the totality of all who came and spoke. But they are the only ones we have recorded. So Amos is the first of the recorded prophets. Whether he's the first that actually spoke, highly doubtful. But this is our first true introduction to what God has to say about these people. With these prophets, we're entering into the official preaching prophets, starting with Amos. And obviously the heart of the message is on God's anger towards Israel for their idolatry, social injustice, and their religious hypocrisy. That is by far the overwhelming majority of what God has to say. With that is the judgment he is bringing. And those two things go hand in hand. This is your sin, this is the judgment. This is your sin, this is your judgment. And he interweaves them together. But there is a promise of restoration that also goes through these. And what you're going to find is that when it comes to the sin of the people and the judgment of the people, it's pretty much going to be the same from prophet to prophet to prophet to prophet to prophet as we go. And that's going to feel very repetitious. But at moments, most of the time at the end of a prophetic book, like Amos or Micah, but oftentimes too spattered, splattered without that, like Hosea, there is a message of hope and restoration. And that's what's going to build. That's what we're going to see in Amos. He's going to introduce this idea of restoration. Then Hosea is going to layer a little bit more on it. And then Micah is going to layer a little bit more on it. And they're going to keep layering more and more until this picture gets more detailed. So the, the sin and the judgment is going to be the same message. But you remember those books back in the day, like they, the, the, the medical books or the human body books? And there was a transparency section in the middle where they have a skeleton. And you can layer this transparency on for like the nervous system, then the circulatory system, then like the lungs and the organs, and then the muscles and the flesh. That's kind of what the promises of restoration are going to do. Each prophet is going to layer a new idea or a new aspect on. And this is really going to be amplified when we get to Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And then we're going to have to wait a while. But when we get to the post-exilic prophets, they'll amplify it even more. And we'll get even more layers until you have what we are used to as many of the prophecies of coming of Christ, as well as many, 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 many more that we don't really think about because they haven't happened yet and they're yet to come. This promise of restoration is going to focus first on God's promise to restore them to the land. One day Israel will be brought back to the land. And we'll talk about what that actually looks like as we get deeper and deeper. 
This is going to come in two parts. And it's going to be the land being restored into a flourishing, prospering, fruit-giving land. And the people are going to somehow be changed so that they will be different. They'll actually want to obey God, and they'll actually be able to obey God. And so the restoration land is not just coming home back to a land. The restoration land is a transformation of the land into something way better than anything they experienced, and the transformation of the people into something way better than anything that they've ever been. This is all brought together with Yahweh dwelling with them in this image of a Davidic king. Okay, this Davidic king is going to come and rule them in a way that a Davidic king has never ruled before. He's really going to bring prosperity, forgiveness of sins, all that kind of stuff. And that's important to understand because remember in the garden, God put Adam and Eve in the land and dwelt with them. And that has been the theme all throughout the Bible. The three most important things is Yahweh and humanity in the land together. And we lost that in the fall. When we get to these restoration promises... He's going to talk about the people being returned to the land with a Davidic king. And there's many times that the Davidic king and Yahweh sound like the same. Now, we know in hindsight this is Jesus, the God-man. But they didn't know that. This is all symbolically represented as the new Jerusalem. So what you have is the people in Yahweh, the Davidic king, living in the land together, and this land and these people are transformed in a way that we've never seen them. And so the king ruling over them in the land, these three things come together to become the new Jerusalem. This new Jerusalem is way more than a city. It's way more than a city. It's an idea. And it's going to be all-encompassing. And this is then the prophets are going to take that new Jerusalem and they're going to develop how that new Jerusalem is going to affect the nations around them and all of the earth, physically speaking, like the land of the earth, the trees of the earth, the rivers of the earth, everything. And it's almost this idea that, one, the nations will all come into this new Jerusalem, but the nations will also be destroyed by this new Jerusalem. And so the idea is that what the nations have been in their evil will be destroyed, and those who choose to leave the evil of the nations will come into this new Jerusalem and be a part of it. And then this will literally transform the entire earth into a, like a utopian society. And so this is the image of restoration that God is painting here. And I think it's very important to understand this because these are the elements. And they're so important. And we're going to get different layers of these elements on top of each other over and over and over again. So these are the two, the two messages that are dominating here. Okay, their sin brings judgment, ultimately exile. And then the promise of return to the land where they become this new Jerusalem that affects all the earth and all the nations. And so it's interesting that God is going to give them over to the nations for judgment, but he's going to promise that one day the nations will want to join them for redemption and restoration. And that's basically the two sides of the coin as we go through these prophetic books. Amos. Amos was a pre-Assyrian prophet, so he's ministering to the people before the Assyrians come, and he ministered to Israel, which is the northern kingdom, the ten tribes in the north. He ministered during the time of 767 through 753 BC, during the reign of Jeroboam II of Israel, and why Uzziah 
was reigning over Judah. The main idea of the book of Amos is Yahweh's rebuke of Israel for their idolatry and lack of social justice concerning the poor and is calling them to true worship. That's the main idea. Everything here is going to be focused on condemning Israel for their idolatry and their social injustice of how they treat the poor and specifically then calling them to what true worship is, real worship of God. The book of Amos is arranged into three major divisions. Amos 1, 1 through 2.16 contains indictments against eight nations, including Judah and Israel, for their sins. The second division is Amos 3, 1 through 6.14. This contains three oracles rebuking Israel specifically for their sins and ignoring Yahweh's warnings. And the third division is Amos 7, 1 through 9.15. This contains five visions from Yahweh condemning Israel for their sins. And then the, this division, as well as the book, ends with Yahweh's promise to restore Israel one day. So the first section is the oracles against the nations. This epilogue begins with Amos being called to be a prophet. And so when we introduced him, it says, verse 1, The following is a record of what Amos prophesied. He was one of the herdsmen from Tekoa, and these prophecies about Israel were revealed to him during the time of King Uzziah of Judah and King Jeroboam the son of Joash of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now this earthquake was huge, so it was worth documenting. But we're not totally aware of what earthquake this really is. Amos is a shepherd in Judah, in the southern kingdom. And the, the idea of him being a shepherd here, it seems less likely that he's a shepherd over a flock and more like a businessman owning a whole series of fields and sheep. And he's running them all. And so he's a very successful businessman, so to speak, when it comes to sheep herding. And he lives in Judah, and he feels convicted of all the sins that he's seeing in Israel and feels like he needs to go address it. And God comes to him in this conviction and calls him to be a prophet and takes him into Israel. So he's interesting. He actually comes from Judah, but he's going to move to Israel and preach messages to them there. This is during the time of Jeroboam II. Jeroboam II was a horribly evil despot king that oppressed the people drastically. But he also was one of the wealthiest kings since the days of David and Solomon. He was extremely wealthy, extremely powerful, extremely prosperous. He got closer to returning Israel to what Solomon had since the days that Solomon lost everything after his death. He has an extremely wealthy, prominent, affluential country that he's running with great wealth and great spending power and economic stability and yet a very morally corrupt government that's oppressing everybody and making money for the rich at the expense of the poor. And Amos does not like what he's seen. And neither does Yahweh. And Yahweh calls him into the divine counsel of Yahweh, gives his message, and sends him off. The other thing that we see with Amos is he's extremely sharp. He's extremely intelligent, very witty, highly sarcastic, and he knows how to drill the people. And God is going to use this because this is something we're going to talk about later when we get the post-exilic prophets. But we're going to see the spiritual attunement to Yahweh and the divine counsel and their wittiness to what God is doing is going to taper off and diminish 
with prophet after prophet after prophet. To the point that when we get to the last prophets like Zechariah and stuff, they have no idea what God is trying to say. I mean, not no idea. They get the message, but the, the finer tuned things. And we're going to talk about that later when we get the post-exilic prophets. But right now, Amos is like the sharpest of them all when it comes to his wit and his understanding of what God is doing. So this first section, God is condemning eight nations. And these nations surround Israel. And what's interesting is that he spirals around. He starts at the furthest nation away, Damascus, all the way in the north. And he's going to spiral down to the Philistine territory, which is closer to Israel on the west. And then he's going to move down to the south, and then up to the east, and then north again. But he's going to get closer and closer and closer with each nation until he spirals. So he basically starts out, and he spirals around as he comes in, and then he hits Judah, and then he hits Israel, and that's like the bullseye. The whole point is going for Israel the entire time. And for each nation, he's going to have this phrase, I have three things against you, no four. And basically that way, that's God's way of saying, I have a lot of things I have against you. Okay, I, I'm thinking of three. No, I can actually think of four. And the implication is God would go on and say, well, I can think of five, not actually six. Well, now that we've gotten to six, I can think of seven and eight. And that's like, it's a metaphor for God has way more that he can think about. But what's interesting is that he'll only list two major sins for each nation. Now, we know there's way more, but he's only going to list two major ones. When he gets to Israel, he's going to list a whole bunch. And the implication is not only is Israel the target, but he has a whole lot more against Israel than all the pagan nations. And the idea is that not only has Israel become worse than the nations, is what the book of Kings told us, but Israel is also held to a higher standard and a greater judgment because they knew more and they were closer to God. And so the real target is Israel because they know better or they should have known better. Well, they do know better. So that's his target in these eight nations. But the other implication is by starting with these nations, we often think of God sending his prophets to Israel and Judah because Israel and Judah are his people. And they're the ones of the law, they're the ones that violated it, and they're the ones that deserve the judgment. But by God condemning all the nations around Israel, he's making it clear that, yes, Israel is my chosen people, but I am the sovereign God of the universe, and all of the nations belong to me. And it doesn't matter whether you acknowledge me or not, or worship me or not, I am ultimately your God. And somewhere way back in the day, you knew that, and you had the law, and you have your conscience, and you have violated me, you have violated your conscience, you've sinned against your people and the people around me, and you are going to answer to me. And you will not answer to God's Baal and commotion, Moloch and all them. You will answer to me, because I am ultimately God. And you're going to see that message as we go through, especially Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, that God's going to deal with all the nations, because he has that right as God. And so this is the message. Verse 2, Amos said, Yahweh comes roaring out of Zion from Jerusalem. He comes bellowing. The shepherd's pastors wilt, and the summit of Carmel withers. Now, the idea here is that God is coming, and he's coming with such anger and rage that the heat of his anger, so to speak, is melting the mountains. Now, remember, this isn't literal. 
This is highly poetic metaphorical language to communicate the anger and the sadness of Yahweh as he faces his thing. Yahweh is incredibly angry. The kids have just got caught committing one of the worst things they could ever do in the house. And dad is just livid. Absolutely livid. Everything is melting in his path. This is what Yahweh says, verse 3. Because Damascus was committed, has committed three crimes, make that four. I will not revoke the decree of judgment. They ripped through Gilead like threshing sledges with iron teeth. Gilead was the, that region on the eastern side of the Transjordan River. Okay, they were the Transjordan region. So remember way back in the day when they were taking the land, Reuben and Gad and half of Manasseh said, hey, we really like the land on the eastern side of the Jordan River. We would like to live here. And God didn't want them to live there, but Moses didn't go to God. And he said, sure, on one condition that you help us conquer the land. Now, because of that, Gilead was separated from Israel and they lost their unity with Israel. And Gilead was the first one to be invaded by the enemies and overtaken. And the first ones to kind of lose their identity as they were overtaken by invading nations and they disconnected from Israel. And that was the long-term consequence. But just because they disobeyed God and took a land they weren't supposed to live in, they're still his people. And the consequences of that were they were the first to be invaded and the first to lose their identity. However, they're still God's people. Therefore, the nations who did that to them will answer for what they did. Even though Gilead should, or the people should have never been in Gilead, that doesn't mean that God doesn't care about what happened to them. And so he lays in them and says, you rip through them like threshing sledge with iron teeth. Threshing sledges are big metal sledges that you pull through the grain to beat it and cut it and grind it down. And so there's a wicked image there. Think about a modern day image would be being caught up in a combine. Okay, that's what they did. And that's not good. So I will set Hazel's house. Hazel was the king over Aram at that time. Remember, he was the one to be anointed by um, Elisha. Well, supposed to be by Elisha, but Elisha. So I will set Hazel's house on fire. The word house there means like family, household. His whole kingdom, his throne, his power, his family. He will consume Ben-Hadad's fortress. Ben-Hadad was the name of many other kings before Hazel and after Hazel. I will break the bar in the gate of Damascus. I will remove the ruler from the wicked valley. The one who holds the royal scepter from Beth Eden, the people of Aram, will be deported to Kerr. And Yahweh has spoken. So that's the first judgment. You're going to be deported. And you're going to be the first to be deported. And when the Assyrians came down from the north, Aram was the first in the Syria. Syria is everything along the Mediterranean coast from the northern part of the Mediterranean all the way down to Egypt. It's that whole strip of land. And they were the first one to be carried off in exile. And Aram was a powerhouse, an incredibly military, politically powerful powerhouse. And yet when Assyria came, Assyria rolled over them like teeny little ants. No matter how powerful they were, they could not stop the Assyrian Empire. And even though Assyria is not going to be specifically mentioned until later in the pre-Assyrian prophets, that is the nation that is understood here. So then we move to Gaza. Gaza was one of the major capitals of the Philistine territory. The Philistines were located on the western coast of the, well, the western coast of Israel, right up against the Mediterranean Sea. And they were the thorn in Israel's side. They were always there, always oppressing them, always coming back. 
And even David and Solomon in their heyday never really wiped out the Philistines like they were supposed to. So this is what Yahweh says, verse 6, Because Gaza has committed three crimes, no, make that four, I will not revoke my decree of judgment. They deported the whole community and sold them to Edom. So I will set Gaza's city wall on fire and will consume her fortresses. Now, remember the Philistines were the most technologically advanced people of that time period in that region. They had the market on the iron trade and the iron making of weapons. They were like the San Francisco, New York, that kind of stuff of America that time period. The most advanced, the first ones to get the latest and newest, politically powerful, socially influential. And Israel, when they started being oppressed, the Philistines immediately came in, captured the Israelites, and then sold them off to the Edomites in slavery. And God did not like that. And so what God is going to say is the things that you take the most pride in, your giant fortresses with all your technology, your power, and your might, I will burn them down to the ground. They will be ashes. I will remove the ruler from Ashdod, which is another major city in the Philistine territory, the one who holds a royal scepter from Ashkelon. I didn't mention this with Damascus, but remember, royal scepter is a, a scepter, a staff that symbolizes that you have absolute authority over your nation. And so what God is saying is, I'm going to strip you of your authority. You will be nothing. You will be a pauper compared to what you once were. Of Ashkelon. Ashkelon is another major city. I will strike Ekron with my hand. The rest of the Philistines will also die, and the sovereign Yahweh has spoken. So these are the most prominent, most powerful cities, and God says, I'm going to ruin them. The implications of their being ruined, all the cities are being ruined. And God is dealing with them. The Philistines were absolutely clobbered as well. Verse 9. This is what Yahweh says, because Tyre has committed three crimes, make that four, I will not revoke my decree of judgment. Now Tyre was up above north. So if you look at the map, Aram was in the north on the eastern side, and Phoenicia was in the north on the western side on the coast of Israel, or the coast of the the Mediterranean Sea. And the Phoenicians were a very powerhouse. Tyre was actually an island a couple kilometers off of the coast. And Tyre had one of the most amazing navies by the time we get to Alexander the Great. And they were considered practically unconquerable because selling, sailing people out to their island to try to conquer a city with walls on an island is practically impossible. And God says, no, 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 you're going to fall too. You're going to fall too. And what's interesting is we don't know exactly in what way the Assyrians conquered Tyre. However, we do know when Alexander the Great came along, he smashed them. And they thought they were undefeatable. And when Alexander the Great came along, he actually gave all of his men shovels, and they started digging the ground up on the shore of the sea and dumping it into the sea. And they did this until they built a land bridge all the way to the island and then conquered the island. And when Tyre fell, it was like defeating Superman. And everybody in Syria just waved the white flag. Like, we, we give up. We're not going to try to face off for you. And they were so cocky, and they fell. And this is the idea that God is making here. They sold a whole community to Edom. They failed to observe a treaty with their brotherhood. So I will set fire to Tyre's city walls. Fire will consume their fortresses. Now, for them, they betrayed treaties. God does not like it when you violate covenants. And violate treaties. Verse 11, this is what Yahweh says, because Edom, now Edom 
was south of the Dead Sea. And they were directly south of the Dead Sea. Remember, they are the brother of Israel. Jacob and Esau were brothers. And Jacob had the descendants who became known as Israel. And Edom had the descendants, sorry, Esau became the descendants who were known as Edom. And so Edom is held to a higher standard because they actually come from Abraham as well. And they should know better. They've committed three crimes to make that four. I will not revoke my decree of judgment. He chased his brother, Jacob, or Israel, with a sword. He wiped out his allies. In his anger, he tore them apart without stopping to rest. In his fury, he relentlessly attacked them. So I will set Timon on fire, will consume Bazara fortresses. Now notice the common theme here is betraying people and attacking other people when they're defenseless. When they're defenseless. God does not like that. Verse 13. This is what Yahweh says, Because the Ammonites have committed three crimes, and will make that four, I will not revoke my decree of judgment. And the Ammonites, so if you have Gilead on the eastern side of the Jordan River, the Ammonites were just directly east of them. And the Ammonites were the descendants of Ammon, who was the son of Lot and one of his daughters. So remember in Genesis chapter 19, Lot flees son of Gomorrah, and the daughters are freaked out that they'll never find husbands. And so they get dad drunk, and they sleep with him, and the one daughter becomes pregnant and gives birth to Ammon, and he becomes the father of the Ammonites. And the other daughter gets pregnant and becomes, gives birth to Moab, who becomes the father of the Moabites. So Ammon is also a descendant of Abraham, so to speak. Because Lot was semi-adopted when he came to land. They're part of the Abrahamic covenant. And so they have betrayed their own people. And they attacked Gilead. They ripped over in Gilead's pregnant women. So that they could expand their territory. So I will set fire to Rabah's city wall. Fire will consume her fortresses. War cries will be heard on the day of battle. A strong gale will blow on the day of the windstorm. Ammon's king will be deported. And he and his officials will be carried off together. Yahweh has spoken. 